You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. Well, I have, I've had troubles with the word microaggression. I've, I've had troubles with it for quite some time. We hear, I think I've been hearing it more and more over the, the last few years. In particular, the last year, I've been hearing it a lot more in the workplace and um, because people are trying to be woke or aware. Um, but the reality of living it, it's not micro. Right, it, exactly. It, it, it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. Um, it and so when we, for me, when we talk about it as a micro thing, the parallel is that when somebody's behaving that way, it becomes a dialogue or a narrative of that person's too sensitive, mm-hmm. or I didn't mean anything by it. So I don't know what the big deal about it is, or, um, well, you know, she's just bringing it up because she's hurt. And it's, it's not, it's not about being hurt. It's about every instance of those things that have transpired over your life for a long period of time, continuing to open a wound of uh, a larger viewpoint that you don't belong, or um, there's something not quite right with you, or those, um, we have to contain you as opposed to the larger picture that you're not wanted here, and um, or you're not wanted to be a participant in that society or that structure in within the society. And so for me, when I've been looking at this and a lot of my writing over the last year has been about um, microaggressions because of, of experiencing it in a wild, you know, a lot, lot different areas of my life. Um, I go back to the beginning point of erasure. So mm-hmm. the eraser of, of my identity. So, you know, being born, um, being taken from my black mother, my birth date being changed my name being changed and my black mother not being allowed to take me back to Jamaica or make arrangements for me to go to Jamaica because realizing that it's, she's going to lose me. Right. So, and then that whole erasure going to a small community where there's no people of color. And so I think one of the biggest macroaggressions you can do to a transracial adoptee is to put them in a white family and not have any mentors. Mm-hmm. and and so in that you know that whole and it becomes a series of events from from earlier in your childhood um basically from your birth to try to unpack and try to find a place within living in a social structure that doesn't include you and mm-hmm. so how do we find that so you know my writing is about that but it's also that place of moving from that place to a place of where do you find your place within all of that so that you can actually have good mental health is that possible you know and what is the generational impact of that when I watch my my son growing up and facing these um horrible aggressions as a black indigenous child young man he's not a child he's a young man Mm -hmm. so um and I was, you know, I was going to, with all that, you know, I've uh, been paying attention to and re- listening to interviews from, in particular, Robin Maynard and Desmond Cole and um, Defunct the Police. I've been listening to a lot of that lately. And I was framing um, an essay around, around the police involvement in my life mm. and what, and the transition of that um, from being a young, young girl in kindergarten to 
um, at late teens, early twenties and that, um, in that experience. And so I never really thought much about it, but I've thought more and more about it watching my son get stopped by the police, um, recently, you know, in, in his teenage years, he shared with me recently that the reason he decided to go bald um, from the time he was like 14 to 20 was because he found that he got stopped less by the police. So I thought this, really? the narrative, yeah, huh. he got stopped a lot and, and it didn't help. He still got stopped a lot yeah. um, because he's got a look that people quite don't know you know what he is right which is really a horrible thing to say but that's kind they don't of what, know they don't know where he belongs where he belongs belong do you belong in this neighborhood mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. do you work in this neighborhood what do you look like you, you know do you look like the people who live here do you look like the people who work here you know do you look like the people who you, you know who i think are going to be dangerous here you know who have no business being here um in, in the book Traces of History that, that, I, ju- that I just finished, he, he quotes a woman who's saying, you know, when we talk about uh, dirt, um, well, all we're really talking about is things out of place. Right. That's all we're really talking about. You know, you know, things are, you know, I don't particularly object to dirt, you know, being out in my yard. I don't want it. In, I don't want it in my living room. I'm going to vacuum it. I'm going to say that it's dirty, you know, or dust or, you know, any of the things that my dogs drag in, like they have their place. And, you know, and, and as, you know, racially marginalized people, um, we're dirt, we're out of place. Yeah. And we know, you know, so, you know, to be racially marginalized um, in the colonial West is to be forever out of place. You know, whether you're black or indigenous or some combination, you're out of place. You know, you're meant to be erased. You're meant to be moved around. You're meant to be, you know, you're, you're, you're meant to serve particular, you know, serve, serve particular purposes. And, and I, I am increasingly using the term racially marginalized as opposed to just racialized. Um, because when I say that somebody is racialized, I'm still centering whiteness as not being racialized absolutely and you know so it's more words and it takes up more you know more characters on twitter but yeah that's okay (laughs) but i feel like you know that's just something because when i because that's what we were racially marginalized it's the race has pushed us to the margins and centered whiteness but their whiteness is racialized Mm -hmm. as well yeah. to its own purpose. So that's just kind of explaining a little bit about my language. <laughs> well, I like that when you say to its own purpose to, to clarify, because I think that that's important in um, when we share and talk about our stories um, in, in, to, in particular, and I'll use your term racially marginalized. Um, and, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about the police stuff because mm. I, it occurred to me how early that involvement is Mm -hmm. like I never really thought about it um but when I was working on this essay I was talking about you know when I when I was five years old I was pretty determined young person which probably got me in a lot of trouble with my mother but I was very determined so um and I really liked school I liked being at school much more than I liked being in my parents home so I was just set to go to school and it was a PD day or some holiday or something so I got up and my, my, you know, mind you, my parents had three kids and they adopted four black kids. So 
they, you know, and I was the youngest, so they somehow missed me in that whole thing. So I got dressed and I went to school and um, I didn't even notice that there wasn't anybody else, any kids walking to school. I was just on my own determined to get to see my kindergarten teacher because I loved her. I was absolutely in love with this teacher. Um, so anyways, I get to the school and there's no school. I can't get into school. And I feel that I'm locked out. Like I feel like nobody wanted me. So I'm, I'm crying and I'm trying to get into school and I'm banging on the doors. And finally I decide to leave and I'm walking up the path to go back to my parents' house and a police car shows up and the police says, um, are you Angela? And I said, yes, your mother's looking for you. <laughs> so I get in the back of the car and I go home and so the idea is framed in my mind is that the police saved me they, from what I'm not sure, but they saved me from something. And, you know, a couple of years later, my favorite bike, my parents bought me this bike and I love this bike was stolen one weekend when we were away. So when we got back from this trip, the first thing I wanted to see is if my bike was okay. So I run and get my look for my bike and it's not there. So my parents call the police and two weeks later they find my bike and I overhear the conversation with the police and what they say to the, to my parents is, yeah, we found it in somebody's backyard, not off of Herkimer drive. And, and they were known to us. Hmm. So this is the very, this is the key that they were known to us. So years go by and I'm 12, 13 years old and I'm out playing with my friends and my parents knew where I was. The police show up and they, the police knew exactly where I was. So my parents knew exactly where I was, but they called the police to come and get me to bring me home rather than getting into the car. And this is what I'm setting up and what, you know, Robin Minor, Maynard talks about in terms of um, the police being involved with, you know, overly involved with people that are in care, right? And my parents use the police as part of their parenting. So they, the police would show up and bring me home. And it, and it didn't occur to me at the time, like I was embarrassed, but this wasn't happening to any of my white friends. So I was the only black kid there. I was the only person mm -hmm. of color. And so the police would come and they would pick me up and take me home. And every now and again, my father would joke about, well, I was at the mall. Well, we were, weren't sure if we needed to call the police to come and get you. And as we got a bit older, um, my mother, she had, by this point, she'd gone back to school and, later and probably 48 as she went back to school got her grade 12 and became a social worker and became very involved with the police because she her part of her work was investigating social uh, welfare fraud uh, at the time so she continued to use the police to parent her black children so every time i used the phone i would there was a card by the phone, it was taped to the wall that had inspector so-and-so's name. And it got to the point where I stopped using that phone and would go downstairs and use the phone because I always saw that. I move out of the house when I was 16, I'm on my own. Um, I get into some trouble, uh, not bad trouble, but I get into some trouble. I was drunk and I broke somebody's door and you know, stupid teenage stuff. But um, this person where I was staying called the police because I broke the door rather than have a conversation with me she called the police and so the first thing the police said um, to her oh we know Angela Gray she's known to us and this person tells me that and I'm thinking how am I known to them 
I've never been arrested. I've never shoplifted, not at that time, but by that point, like I'd never been arrested. You know, the only involvement that they had with me was because of my parents' use of them to help parent. Mm -hmm. And so we carry, you know, I've carried this idea of the police as being the savior. And by that point, by the time I was 16, I was petrified of the police to the point where if I saw a police car drive by, I would duck and hide. Hmm. And I did that pretty much up until my son was born. And then I had to just sort of get over that because I needed to use the police. Um, and in the end, they actually really helped me. But that feeling still hasn't gone away. And that feeling is still and that involvement is still in my life today, even though they're not tracking me down, they're tracking my son. Mm-hmm. You know, he was out for, we had thought that this had stopped. And earlier in the year, he was out for dinner with his girlfriend. Um, and the police saw his girlfriend and then saw him outside of the restaurant, came into the restaurant and asked him for ID and pulled their computer up, set it up on the bar and searched to see if he had, probably if he had any priors in front of everybody in this restaurant when he was trying to have a nice dinner. Wow. And there's a few things that came to mind here for me is nobody said anything, not even the waiter or the manager, nobody said anything. And he came into the bathroom and called me and he was so distraught by it that he thought he was disturbing me, his mother who loves him the most in the world. Hmm. He apologized to me for calling him about a really horrific situation. And so I bring that up in that this is the programming that happens with this stuff and puts us at outside of society thinking that there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite right. These di- I had this dialogue with my therapist a couple of weeks ago because I'm dealing with some of this in in a couple of areas of my life, um, dealing with these significant um, microaggressions and trying to unpack them to find my voice in them so that I can stand up for myself and, and not be taking it on. Mm-hmm. And so what comes up for me though, is that there's still that little voice that there's something not quite right. There's yeah. something kind of off about me. And I have to correct myself and say, we need to unpack the larger society the colonialism, all of that stuff that is not quite right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do we come back to ourselves and continue to unpack that so that it's not taking up our entire weekend? I was dealing with a board member from a volunteer organization all weekend because I called her out on her microaggression towards me. And what I was met with was with some horrible, horrific emails. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, why would you racist? And that's the, that's it. Well, I'm not racist. So those are the things, right? Yeah, those I'm not racist. Well, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. And you're it's insulting me that you're calling me out on poor behavior, and you're just sensitive, mm-hmm. right? And other people will chime in and say, "Well, Angela, I understand that you're hurt," and I'm no, no, no. I am not hurt this is not about hurt. The issue is much deeper than this. And I'm not going to do it in an email dialogue, but if you want to talk to me about it, I will talk to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that we have to keep 
unpacking and correcting and living our lives. And then you just think, what's the point? Why am I doing this? Yeah, yeah, it's exhausting. Well, and then when you talk about um, the police, you, you know, being known to police, you know, 16 years of child welfare, that's got consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you call, you know, like you, you you know, like you get a a police report about something because in some neighborhoods, people are just in each other's business all the time. And so they're calling the police because they can't parent, they can't problem solve. So they call on the police all the time because, you know, they can't find their, you know, you know, they go get their kid or, um, you you know, they're having a dispute with a neighbor or something. And then if there's children within eyesight of a cop, they send the report into child welfare. And then, and then that phrase, they're known to us. They're known to us. Yeah. And it could be completely benign, like what you're describing. It's parents that are using the police to parent their child, or because you can't, or because your neighbor can't problem solve and calls the police on you all the time. Right. And yet that little phrase, they're known to us. It, they're known to really- us. And that gets interpreted a very particular way oh, right. in child welfare. Right. And yeah. Now you now try now try to get rid of the now try to get rid of the social worker right? <laughs> you know? because something that. something must something must be going on something must be going on um, we don't know what it is yet but we're gonna find out something must something must be going on and that's you know when you know you even say you know you've got uh, you know and you got help you, you know the one time that you you know you, you needed them and and they were helpful to you and i know you know carrie and i had 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 a good experience you know you know in our working relationship but wouldn't it be nice if there were non-carceral systems where people could get that kind of support absolutely right absolutely. right just because just because we got a little bit of help here and there from these systems that's how they suck us in that doesn't legitimize them. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Like I've just been really listening uh, to you, Angela, and your story. And first, I just want to mention and witness you as you've moved through the process. You know, um, I, I feel it very deeply because your story, you know, has been very similar. There are some tendrils that make a lot of sense in my own experiences with having to deal with the police as well. And I know that it's just that commonality, that space of being Black and um, dealing with, you know, officers and that system is a factor. It's just what we have to do as people of color to grapple with this space. I know even till this day, and I like you, um, had have, have like this very conflicted relationship with um, the the with police because literally they they have saved my life when I was in a very detrimental situation. I, however, it took I had to go twenty times before I got it there, there was a lot of disregard in some of it, but when I finally got it, it came through and it won for me. So I I have this conflicted um, space, but I also am, even now when a police officer drives past me, I flinch. It is, 
I, I am still dealing with some of the residual because as I've had that positive experience, I've also had some very, very negative ones where, you know, um, the neighborhood I live in presently, presently is, um, is all white. There's myself and another family. There's probably a subdivision about 500 houses there's another family there's and I just found out one moved in so there's three of us out of about 500 houses and we used to very often um notice officers just driving by sitting at the end of our mine that was involved in the um system and had some things going on but since that cleared up and it's been about a year now, I've noticed that there's no more officers anywhere in the vicinity of where I live. Whereas about at least three times a week, one would sit somewhere. And we're, we're a very quiet crescent. It's a very quiet little crescent, cul-de-sac. It doesn't make any sense that they would be here on the regular, you know? So, um, you know, those experiences are, are really hard and I and I could tell there's there's so many I I lived I have um, or came from a family where we had five young men teenagers and it would be without fail one of those young men and my husband somebody would be stopped by the police at least once a week and ask for ID and, and that whole thing, right? Like that, that whole space of public humiliation to be stopped outside of your house, to be, you know, and it, it crosses over from, you know, that sort of involvement, but from the police and the, the taking on of the role and say retail, right? So it wasn't very long ago, it was probably three, four years ago, I was walking into a store um, on my way home from work. I was walking home and I thought, oh, that place has some funky shirts. I think I'll go in there. And I was outside looking on the rack and the store owner came out and he looked at me and he says, yeah, I don't think we have anything in this store that fits you. You know, I, I had a, an experience in one of our local stores recently, my daughter and I, this was before the first, this last lockdown, we were in a, a drugstore, that's what I'll say, in our region. And we were by the makeup section looking for a lipstick, I think it was, and we got the exact same response. I was looking for a particular red and they were like, yeah, we don't have it. But then when I looked around, I was like, it's right there. And they were like, no, we don't, we don't have it. And I was like, but it's right there. That's exactly the color. I, I looked it up before I got here. And she was like, no, cause it had to be, they had it behind a case. And she was like, no, that's not it. Sorry. And because I was like, I'm going to leave this to Jesus moment. I was having to leave it to Jesus moment. <laughs> instead, instead of, you know, I just, I just decided I was going to leave the store. But that is the reality 
of some of how we have to exist. And in fact, there's another, one more story before we, I, we can you know, move on. I have, I mentioned to you that there's another family that moved into this area. Um, and she, she uh, bought a house on a street that's pretty, it's really a private kind of um, section of this subdivision. Uh, you know, the houses are, we're, this neighborhood's about 30 years old, most people don't move. So she just recently purchased and, you know, would have stood out like, you know, she's new. She was bought, bought her groceries, opening her front door, trying to get in and a car drove past her and slowed down, took a big old look, then sped off and sped away. Within about five minutes, she was taking the, her you know, stuff out. She has three kids, so you know, you're gonna have a whole pile of stuff. Within about five minutes, two officers pulled up at the front door and said they had had a report of somebody breaking into this house. Right. So nice to feel welcome and safe. And in 2021. And I, and I think, you know, when we, we speak about these incidences, we're recognizing that there, there's been some sort of shift. I think, you know, some people have met, felt really brazen in the realm of watching what has happened in the United States. And when Trump was in power, I almost think that there was like a, a refueling of this space um, where, you know, people thought they can be bright and outright with, with some of this racist dialogue. For sure, he normalized it and empowered them. And I mean, I had, there was a, a woman on Facebook I was engaging with, she had made a comment that, you know, it was so, you know, you know, she'd give this to Trump, you know, having it out in the open where we could see, we could see the ugly racism. And I was trying to get her to understand that one, if she had just been listening to black and indigenous people all along, right. none of this is new, <laughs> you know, Standing Rock and Ferguson, I never tire of reminding people Standing Rock and Ferguson happened on Obama's watch. Having a black man in the White House did not save black people, did not save indigenous people. Having Deb Haaland, she might be a great pick, but having her as the head of the ministry, uh, uh, of the, the interior, whatever they are, will not save the Indians, right? She's not even the yeah. first. Eli Parker was right. the first. Right? <laughs> Curtis came after him. He was a vice president. So she's not the first. And, and, but, you know, these things, you, you know, the, these, these things don't save us. And yet, you know, she didn't, she didn't get what I was trying to tell her is that having it out and normalized and empowered is killing mm -hmm. us. People are literally dying because as you said, Carrie, these white supremacists feel empowered. They can act on it. They think, you know, they don't have, they, they don't have to be in secret anymore. I liked them better when they were secret and not burning shit down and shooting everybody. Right. You know, please go back underground and keep your shit to yourself. <laughs> I, I know you're there. I know you're there. The racisms still happen. 
The police are still who they are. The systems are still in place, but I like you better when you're quiet and you're not in my because face. Because at the very Please. when you're working. <laughs> this is not doing us right? any favors. When you're working in that kind of stealth, you understood that there was maybe a semblance of a chance for a consequence. But when you are just brazen with your stuff, that tells us that we have now stepped up into a level now. When you're outright like that, there, there is that sense of, of knowing that um, we, I, for me, we've crossed that boundary, you know, where we got to really almost level up now, because the reality of the truth is if you're, if you can feel so bright with yourself, then that means that there's an inference that the system is working on a level that is keeping us, you know, having to be directly in this confrontation. Um, yeah. And I'm, um, I, I'm recognizing though, I'm enjoying some of the dialogues. I was looking up, I've been watching a young woman, um, Kim Foster uh, from For Harriet. She's, um, she's a YouTube uh, young woman, brilliant, brilliant young woman. She talks quite a bit about pop culture, but she's a feminist and uh, she's a black feminist and she is very much about dissecting these kinds of issues. And she had on and did an incredible talk about restorative justice with, um, I'm just looking it up, but she had this incredible talk and what they were talking about is completely pulling down uh, decriminal, not just decriminalizing, but abolishing the system and what it could potentially look like when we, you know, replace it or, you know, whatever that realm would be, knowing that, you know, going in with the, the understanding and the knowing that it's kind of a trial and error space. You know what I mean? That we may have to try many things before we could reconstruct or create something that is going to value and create real senses of justice. Because what, what was mentioned in it, and I thought it was um, powerful, is that she, she was saying that, um, you know, for many people, especially they were talking in particular about using it in domestic or intimate pi um, partner violence. And that's something that's near and dear to my heart. But what she was speaking about is that for most people, sometimes you get that sense, that feeling of completeness when you, you know, your, your partner has been um, punished and it's punitive. But a lot of the time in those kinds of systems, you still come out, even if your partner goes through it, without that sense of feeling completed, that you really have had justice served. And what I thought was so brilliant about that conversation was what she was interested in, the lawyer that she was speaking to, was interested in creating a space that was based upon what the want of the, the person who had had the injustice done to them, what would be their idea of justice. You know, for some, it may be, you know, you lock them up for 50 years and, and, and that be one end of it. But for others, it might be the apology and writing the right. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, maybe it's you paying for my counseling that I may need because you've caused me this harm. 
Maybe it would be, you know, paying these damages. But what I thought was so wonderful was that it gave the options, the idea of really going with who and what my desires and wants would be after I've been through a space like that. Um, versus it being, you know, a system that throws everybody in and may, you know, not deal with the needs at, at all, in fact, or create um, huger chasms at, for people who are going through those spaces. And we know that, you know, like, especially in a space like domestic violence, a lot of the times an officer is probably not necessarily the first point of contact or, or the best point of contact, right? Wouldn't it be great to have somebody who has the training to understand what is happening? Because we know for many people, you don't leave on that first try or those first incidences and dealing with the whole scope of what happens when we're moving through a situation that can be um, so uh, layered in the way that we look at it. You know, I just, I just, wh when we talk about this conversation of, of being, because to me, we're talking macroaggressions in, in a lot of the ways here, right? The micro and the macro pulled together. What, what is not, um, I think, often addressed is the deep layers of ongoing trauma that these exposures cause us. You know, it is, it's ongoing. It's, it's, it's just like a, a you know, it's like the, 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 this heavy load that sits on our shoulders in every moment. I never know. Um, like the other day, an officer pulled up behind me and I remember just doing this, my instant sense and everything's good. I'm not worried, but until he went around me, I'm like, woo. And it shouldn't, I shouldn't have to have those sensations. And that's still after having a positive look. But I, do, I remember the 20 times that, um, you know, my 12 year old got pulled over over the space of five years. You know, like I remember those incidences. I remember having to take the, the numbers and the badge names down of all of these different officers when they were approaching us. I remember an officer, like we were in the middle of an emergency situation and trying to diffuse it amongst our own, amongst a group of black kids and my husband getting hauled down and put in, in um, on the ground, even though he was the one that was being able to mitigate the situation. But you know, the color's all the same. And it's, it's those experiences that have left that imprint in the space of this. And um, I, I just really think there, there has to be a better way that we can engage and create different spaces for this. I'm all for abolition, like about abolition, abolishing um, police and, and that system. It doesn't serve us in the best way. And what would it be to allocate these funds into, 
you know, the work and the trauma work, especially amongst the, our communities that have been marginalized. We so don't get access to some of those resources that would help us go through and, and create the healing that we so need. And that's, that, that's actually one of the big critiques about restorative justice work is when you put it back on the victim to say, okay, you know, you, you know, what do you want? What do you need? What you're getting, what you're, what you're getting from them is a trauma response. You're getting, you're, you're get you're, and you're making it there. You're making everyone's healing the victim's responsibility, um, particularly in domestic violence cases, but in any case where you've been wronged when now, you, you know, so there, there's other model models out there where somebody um, takes responsibility for the wrongdoer and, and the purpose then is healing. So the person who has taken responsibility for the wrongdoer is basically working with that person. And when they come together, it's basically, how's everybody's healing going? Mm. Are we there? Do we still need more time? Do you feel safe? What do you need to feel safe? Um, you, you know, and, and, you know, and then those people are the ones that are saying, okay, you know what, this, he's, he's still got a lot of work to do. She's still got a lot of work to do. We're not there yet. Um, and so there's space for the victim to talk about what they need and how they need to feel safe. But the ultimate, you, you know, the, the ultimate burden of restoration or healing is on that other person and whoever's responsible for them, because it is a trauma response. We've dealt with a lot. We've dealt with a lot, particularly when we get to that place. And so um, I'm not opposed to restorative justice work, but there's just been a lot of critique around that model of putting it all on, putting it all on well, the victim. Well, I way. believe that a part of that discussion, and I love that we can have that conversation because I think it's very individualized. And I think that the, the idea that one model fits all is it a part yeah. of where this fails for me, you know what I mean? Where the system has failed is that my response and even how I'm gonna show up in my trauma may not be the same as somebody else, right? So yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's a lot to flesh out. I think that it, it would be, as we said, that idea of recognizing that there isn't going to be a one, necessarily a one, um, sock fits all um but but i love the idea of having those conversations and yes. figuring out what will work what what you know what can what does the, what does this situation yeah. need what are the harms that have been done and what does this situation because there are need? some cases where absolutely you know like i i'm i'm not speaking personally but I, I was very glad that some people got locked up <laughs> around my space. I was very glad it was needed, you know? Um, and, and that was justice for me. But I could also see how for some of it, there, we, there, there could have been more, right? And I, and I just wish that those opportunities, these dialogues were available um, in those spaces. And I'm very encouraged that no matter what the, you know, we come up with, we're starting to talk about it. We're starting to offer new ways of coming up with something that's just different than a system that we know feeds very deeply into a capitalist agenda of, you know, putting people in jail so that they can create goods and commodities. We, we, at least we're starting to have those conversations. Now, how that's serving us in the intern, 
um, you know, that's, that's still the work in progress, I guess. I think that, you know, from one of the things that I continue to go back to, in particular, when I was um, going through the police legal stuff around my adoptive family, in particular, my adoptive parents, is that, and we, I grew up believing that the legal system was a justice system. And until we, as, um, as a community, as a people, can reconcile that, it, it, we need, it will make space to have those deeper con conversations about what it could be. Mm -hmm. But we're not living in a, in a, in a world we're living in a legal system that doesn't create justice. So we, we need to stop thinking that that's what its purpose is. I don't think that that, for me, I don't think that that's what right. the purpose is for that system. Right. So to talk about changing something, the conversation has to be a, the broader conversations and almost maybe from a phil philosoph philosophy perspective around really what justice and democracy mm -hmm. is. What is it? Because we're not, um, we're not living that. And we're certainly not living it as it was construed, you know, from our Greek and Italian philosophers. And I just go back there because I, I have an interest in philosophy. I think we can have some greater discussions around de democracy. And there's actually a really great, um, the National Film Board put out a really good doc documentary called What is, what is de Democracy? And it goes through everything that we're talking about in terms of um, our legal system and our prison system and and, you know, where is the space for the victim to have a conversation? And I don't know what that could be, because um, I can sit down and say, I, there's no way that I could have a conversation with my adoptive parents, even though at one time I wanted that. Because until somebody is able to recognize the harm that they've done to another, we can't have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do in the interim? I do think that money should be taken away from the police and put into community resources. That just makes sense. Like, does that just not make sense? Like to have- Does that not make sense? <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to everybody except police and people who want to keep their neighborhoods white. Those are the only people that it makes sense to. Or that, it does, that they want the police to keep having money. Right? But I do, in terms of the microaggressions and the macroaggressions, when I was talking to a lawyer recently, who, she's, not, she's my friend, she's a good friend. And, and she, sometimes when we have these discussions, she bring, brings in it from a lawyer and, and somewhat of a justice perspective because she's a human rights lawyer. Um, but one of the things she was talking to me about in, in a situation that, I, that I'm currently struggling with and working through is what, when this all gets sorted out, um, what's going to be given to you? Like, are they going to provide you with some extra counseling? Are they going to, you know, pay for some days off? Like, what are they going to give to you for having to experience this situation for the last 20 months? And I think that in these systems, what I'm learning is that it's hard to voice those things. When I watch my son, you know, you should do something about this. And his response says, I'm not gonna go up against the police. What do you think they're gonna do the next time when they look in my system and know, and fair enough, right? And when we have these systems, how do we voice our concerns in a way that doesn't continue to d diminish and dismiss us in terms of, I'm not hurt. This is just not just. Mm -hmm. 
can we can we change the dialogue around what the impact is that every time you get stung by that microaggression B, it opens up that wound and continues and continues. And then you're 30 years later and you're still dealing with the police that fucked you up when you're 14, right? And so it is when can we have those greater discussions around justice and, and de democracy and inclusion from a macro level, um, distinguishing against that that does not, those discussions does not fit into a capitalist market. It doesn't mm -hmm. because it's, it's a, it's um, the commodity of information shifts when we're talking about um, capitalism. So the information that we are processing and giving and discussing in that model isn't going to work for us. And I don't know what is, I spent um, a week in February, um, listening to Black Buddhist Summit out of the States. So these are Black people that practice, Black people that practice Buddhism because they found within the Buddhist sect that there is, there's issues around inclusion. And one of the, one of the speakers that I really, really liked was when he was talking about the impact of microaggressions on a larger level is that we as black people, as people of color um, need to find our ways to step back from that knowing ourselves. Like so, and he was encouraging black people themselves to go to other countries to be around black people, to see that it's different there as opposed mm -hmm. to what it is in the States. Well, that right? was your experience in Jamaica. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that a, a friend of mine, my hairdresser said to me before I went, he said, you're going to find a deeper strength within yourself. You're going to feel more empowered. You're going to feel more empowered to get out there and, and do. And somehow he's right. Like, I, I feel like I don't feel as much of that. There's something off with me feeling that you just kind of carry around on your shoulder, not, not wanting to look at it, but knowing that it's there. Um, it's not, it's not that I'm off. It's this community that I'm living in. It's a society that I'm living in that's kind of off. Love that. Right? Mm. Love that. You know, it was interesting. You mentioned, uh, Patty, earlier when Obama got in. I remember um, speaking with some of my... Yay, we're in a post-racial right? world. Right? You remember that? <laughs> like that whole idea that Obama's in so... Racism's are over. over. There's, no, there's no more racism. And, and that was kind of the conversation I was having with some of my American friends, right? And I was, we were kind of, you know, yay, celebrating. But um, for me, and I remember my husband and I too, we were like, yeah, this is great. And it's, it was so monumental for them. But for myself and for, um, and for my husband, we come from Antigua and Barbados, right? where there have been black prime ministers all day, every day, you know what I mean? So the experience of this was monumental. And of course it was amazing, you know, for whatever it was worth or wasn't worth, you know, whatever. But th that, that piece of, of what you were saying, Angela, really resonates with me in that regard because there, each community has the experience of, you know, in the diaspora of what it is to be in our blackness. I know when I go to Antigua, 
everybody looks like me and then some. The shopkeepers are all black, you know? If you had a white teacher, something was weird. Whereas in our experience, if you had a black teacher, something was weird. And so- I don't think I ever had a black teacher. I can't, I think in college. You did in college. I had one black teacher in college, uh, uni university. It was at Niagara University. So that would have been my third year. I had but I can't think of a black teacher in high school. I know there wasn't one in elementary school. I can't think of one in high school. I don't think I had one when I was in college. Um, but even but even just um, you know to continue dragging the Obama years, uh, the movie Get Out, right? Well, you know when you had said you, you know which we were talking about Obama's election and the movie Get Out, where he says oh, I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could. Like that movie was written during the Obama administration, that's when Peel was thinking about it and writing about it. So he's not, it's not about Trump level racists. It's about white liberals, the people who think they're the good guys. Oh, you're speaking <laughs> that's some truth now, Patty. <laughs> that's who he's skewering in that movie and nobody gets it. They all think that they're not like that. You can vote for Obama as many times as you like. You can have lunch, you, you know, you can have brunch with your black friends. Racists always have black always. friends. It blows my mind. It's always the same one. I think there might be two of you out there <laughs> that are friends with all of these white <laughs> I have a lot of white friends. <laughs> no, it's when your white friends tell you sincerely, you know, Angela, I don't see, and I love this person. I do. I see her good. And I, that's where I have to go always is Angela, you know, I, I just don't see your color. I don't understand. And I just, and, and I, you know, after the third time hearing that, I just said, okay, look, look, if you don't see my color, then clearly you don't see me. You don't see my experience. You didn't hear it when I told you about the guy giving the monkey sounds when I was crossing the street. You didn't hear it when I was told, you know, stop going into a store. Clearly you don't hear those things, but those are my reality. So if you can't share my reality on some level, at least have some empathy for it. We, we can't be friends. Like stop the erasure. I love that. It's, it's the erasure. And that's, that's, that is the, the, that is the, that is not micro. That is macro. That is to, to not consider that, you know, your heritage, whatever that, like, I have enough struggle not knowing my heritage. I don't need somebody else putting that shit on me, whether you love me or not. Like, you know, it, so God love them, but man, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and we navigate these things in our relationships and in our friendships. And then when we try to bring them up, then we're dealing with the tears and the anger and right. the, you're always on me. And why yeah. do you say this? And you know, I didn't mean it that way. And it's like, well, could, could this not be about you for 30 yes, seconds? White fragility, right? <laughs> Having to deal with that space of white fragility is almost as exhausting as the actual microaggression. But yet yeah. it is right. the work yeah. that, you know, that's that, you know, for me is the question. Do you find Angela that you pick your battles? Do you pick your battles with this? Do you find that, Patty? I do. 
Oh, for sure. For sure. There's so many people that I don't bring it up. I, I don't bring it up to. And really for anybody, if one, if we do bring it up to you, that is such a gift. That is such a, it, it means it, it does, it, we're demonstrating trust. We're demonstrating the belief that you want to do better. Yeah. We're waking yeah. an investment in this yeah. relationship yeah. because if we're not bringing it up, I mean, you're doing it. I can promise you you're doing it. And if we don't bring it up, then, you know, if we're not having these conversations with you, that reveals a lack of trust and a lack of investment in the relationship. So if we do bring it up, put yourself aside for 30 seconds, listen to what we're saying, listen to the fact that we're saying we believe that you can do that better. We believe in you. You just need to listen. Right. And, and thank you, because that is so true. And it is tiring. And, you know, with, you know, I've been in a book club for 15 years and there's two people of color in the book club. And I decided, ironically, in Back History Month that I'm going to take a, take a break. And it's not because the women aren't lovely women. And it's not because we haven't had some of these conversations over the years. It's the ongoing issue around primarily reading works from white writers, you know? And when you look at that in the whole scheme of things in terms of our lives, like I didn't grow up with having, Patty, I'm, you know, we, none of us grew up in Canada having people of our culture reflected in our materials, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I've been reading this really, and it, it's, it, I'm reading it very slowly, but it's a great book. And it's by David Mura. Um, it's around uh, craft, narrative craft writing uh, around race and identity. Hmm. And so he talks about how, you know, when we're reading, and unless it's a, a black person, indigenous person, an Asian person that's actually identified in the story, the assumption is the person's white. The yeah. story is white, always. And I've known that, but when you're actually reading it and going, holy, and I'm not gonna swear again. And then I put the book down and I have to go in and just process that for a minute. And it's a small, but what does that mean in the whole context of your life? Is that since you were young, that's what it's always been. And so that, you know, the micro bits of, um, indigenous history, true indigenous history. I'm, I'm on the third time doing this course around um, cultural, um, indigenous cultural safety, third time, because every time I learn something new and I cry mm -hmm. because of the parallels in terms of what, you know, that's my son's history, that's his father's history. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's my history that's erased as well. It's, that's the biggest, that, that those macro Russians. So I had to lead this group so that I can take space to focus on black and indigenous writers in Canada. I'm taking the next year and that's all I'm reading. Hmm. The thing that I really got out of the history was in native studies, there's gaps where black people should be. Black in studies. black studies, there's gaps where the native people should be. Yeah. And so we need to put these histories together and have these conversations together, because like I said at the beginning, because and I know, you know, we're just kind of wrapping up black and indigenous are useful categories in terms of talking about race, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yes, 
They're not discrete categories where everybody is either one or the other. Yeah. They're ends of a continuum and there's lots and lots in there's the middle. Lots of flow so, in between. Yeah, so useful categories to think about, but not discrete categories, not mutually exclusive. <laughs> so. I am chomping at the bits to get in, but right now, unfortunately, my focus has had to be on all kinds of sex books. But once I am- All yeah, kinds I'll, of sex. Kinds of sex <laughs> I haven't been able to- I might jump ship. I might jump ship. No. <laughs> I'm sure Black and Indigenous have oh, sex too, right? I, love it. I am getting on it though. I love to hear how you are managing to bring this infusion. And it's so fitting for this conversation because I like as we as we were talking about, those are the spaces to which we can heal. When we pull those kinds of panels yeah. together, when we start to, you know, um, mesh and mesh the histories in such a lavish and luscious way, bringing a fullness to the experience and stories of us, I think that that's mm -hmm. powerful in offering up this place for us to finally start the process of moving through this. And Angela, I just mm -hmm. want to thank you for coming on, for just giving us such a beautiful piece of yourself and your story as usual, you always do that. And, and in just bringing a light to how we're all affected in this space. I, I appreciate you so much for that. I appreciate you guys for the openness and just to have this space, right? Like, you know, Carrie and I talk a bit outside of here, which I'm grateful for, but I'm finding, you know, so many years of having the absence of people of color in my life that I'm wanting and gravitating more and more to that because I think we all need that understanding and that place where we can feel that we can be real. And it's, it's taxing not to be able to be real. And um, I find that my circles as I get older are becoming smaller because, you know, it may, we have to heal from the daily day, right? You know, we, we deal with this in our workplaces as you talked about Hattie and um, I made a, may or may not have alluded to, you know, in our volunteer circles, um, in our relationships, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. And to find that space of being still. All right, thank you so much, Angela. Um, I'm always so happy when you come yes. back. It's me too. Uh, Thank you. You know, the, the, we were aligned. We were aligned together. I'm grateful too. I get so excited. I get nervous and then I get excited. <laughs> Aw, but we're fine. We got you. Yeah. We're fine. We have good we conversations. We're call girls, okay. so we, we'll link up. All right. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Right. Have a great night, Bye. guys. You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook and the website www.med4r.com. Don't forget to rate, share, and support us by buying us a coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash payyourrent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at Danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S.ca. 
You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Curiosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless. <laughs>